0: Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. This is the first episode of a two-part series with three wonderful changemakers, Laura Diaz, Samrat Patania from Environmental Collective for Environmental Justice, or ECEJ, and Isabel Lopez from RICES Collective. This is yet another wonderfully informative and descriptive conversation with phenomenal environmental justice activists on what inspired them to create their own movements and how they're collaborating to help strengthen and empower their own communities. So a little bit about the guests today. Laura Diaz is the co-founder of the Educator Collective for Environmental Justice and a former high school biology teacher. She engages educators in bringing environmental justice-centered topics to their classes through professional development programs centered around action-based projects using data mapping. Her passion for environmental justice comes from growing up in an EJ community in California. Samrat is a passionate advocate for the environment and is also the co-founder of the Educator Collective for Environmental Justice. Samrat grew up in India and studied mechanical engineering. Currently, he teaches physics, mathematics and software programming courses at Walkill High School in upstate New York. Last but not least is Isabel Lopez, who is the founder of Rice's Collective, a nonprofit created out of a need to have dedicated spaces and programs for intergenerational family-friendly art among the bilingual, bicultural communities in Sonoma County, with a mission to empower people through art, culture, and environmental education. I wanted to share the story with you to show you how individuals who have experienced environmental injustices by taking matters into their own hands. And I also wanted to show you how they were collaborating to find creative solutions to engaging communities using art and data to help empower and heal communities who have been marginalized for decades. I hope this conversation gives you some ideas on how you can start collaborating within your own communities. Thank you everyone for being on Breaking Green Ceilings. So I'm really excited to have yet another awesome conversation with change makers like yourselves. Today we're going to be talking about environmental justice, how it's implemented and kind of what is it? What does it look like on the ground? And your vision in terms of how you see environmental justice being implemented in your own communities. What are some of the dilemmas that you have? But most importantly, I think what's also interesting about this conversation is we are talking about how do you create collaborations with like-minded organizations? And just because we all want environmental justice or want to promote it doesn't necessarily mean that we all have the same spirit or the same vision. So how do we find that alignment with the intention of greater impact? So. Today, we have Laura Diaz and Samrat Patania, who are the co-founders of Educator Collective for Environmental Justice. And then we have Isabel Lopez, who is the founder of RICE's Collective. So I'd like for us to get to know you all a little bit more. And I'll start first with our standard question on the podcast, which is what role has nature played in your life? And I'll just go alphabetically so that you don't feel pressure to go first. I'll start with Isabel. What role has nature played
1: in your oh, life? Yeah. Well, I think growing up in Mexico, right? I was born in Mexico in Morelos. And one of the things that I remember so vividly over there was just how much access to the open Like we had a yard, we had fruit trees. We, like my childhood, I had six sisters and a brother. Our childhood was spent like, Climbing trees, eating fruit like white like, and yeah, like all kinds of yummy things. I remember being little and trying to catch the fireflies. It was just like so magical, right, and then immigrating, crossing the border, getting chased by helicopters, and not being seven years old, and not understanding like why we were getting put in jail for just. My family or my mom trying to like give us a better life, right? And reunite with my dad here in California. It just really gave me a whole perspective on like land and like borders and coming here. And then all of a sudden I'm considered low income and poor. And but yet it didn't feel that way when I was in Mexico, right? Like we grew up very like humbly, but I felt more free, right? And so that was my first experience with nature in the environment. Like all of that, right? And at seven, being so young, like getting caught by ice. And actually at the time, probably ice didn't even exist. So all these things that even when I was young and we got like caught right crossing the border and they released us. And nowadays they don't. Like it's shifted towards where you don't get like, you get separated from your family and you're like half. Like it basically in a concentration camp for who knows how long, you know? So even within my lifespan, yeah, it's policies and things concerning like borders and things like that have changed a lot too, and not for the better.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
0: wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. It, <laughs> I'm sure. It's, yeah. Obviously, I haven't experienced that, but I can imagine there's some like trauma around that. But having experienced that kind of i don't know violence in a sense at such a young age
1: yeah even now right because seeing like kids right just torn apart from their family that's triggering because i remember i was separated from my family at one point not necessarily in the jail but because my mom was like oh she they, the young ones can't do that Crossing, right? And so my dad found this guy who pretended we were his kids and drove us to get us in Tijuana and then drove us into San Diego. So in that sense, I was separated. Me and my two mm-hmm. younger sisters were separated from my mom and my sisters. And so for a whole week. And I didn't know at the time, but he cross over to reunite with us. And so I think they got caught by border patrol a couple more times before they made it through. But that week was like the most depressing, saddest time of my life, right? Thinking like, I don't know when I'm going to see my mom again or my family again, right? Like if even ever, because I kept saying like, when are we going to see my mom? They're like, tomorrow, tomorrow. And tomorrow turned into a whole week. After a week, I'm like, oh my God, I think this is it. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to see them again, right? They're lying or something. And so that was super, super traumatic. Like hearing families being separated, that totally... Person yeah. to be like, oh my God, I have like it
0: gives me such a deep sadness because I felt that. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Really appreciate it. All right. So let's go on to Laura. What role has nature played in your life?
3: Yeah. I think it's really interesting how like what I'm about to say like really connects with Isabel because I'm one generation removed from Isabel's experience. And so my parents immigrated to this country. And so I grew up in the East Bay area. So in like Pittsburgh and Antioch, California. And it was kind of crazy. Like, and I didn't know this until later, but we grew up like a mile away from a Dow chemical plant, a couple miles away from a refinery. We would go fishing all the time. And it was like so good to be in community, like on the pier and stuff. And I thought we were just like really bad at fishing, but like my mom never let us keep the fish. And I found out later, actually just like recently when talking to my mom, and that's because there was too much mercury in the water and we weren't allowed to keep the fish. The water was so polluted. And so, I mean, like there's like a spiritual experience that happens when you're out in nature. And I think our access to it was, we only had like bits and pieces of that opportunity because like there were times when we had a shelter in place because there was too much sulfur dioxide being emitted from the, the nearby plant. Like, wow. And then like there was safety wasn't an issue in our neighborhood and stuff like that, right? Like, And then what's also like kind of crazy about hearing Sebel's story is like, you know, my dad's father was deported and I moved to Mexico to be with him. And it was during that time that I reconnected with like nature actually. And it made me sad because I know why my dad chose to come to America. But it also made me sad at the same time because there's so much beauty and so much more access compared to like what I grew up with. But I think like that's something that grounds me in my work now because every community deserves to live in dignity where you can have equal access to nature and have that same spiritual experience. And it shouldn't be like, I'm really very eccentric, but it shouldn't just be for like the super rich in the Silicon Valley. Yeah, it's
0: like accessing nature is this privilege where you should have the money to buy the equipment, or even figure out the closest park, how to get there, the fees, like there's just so many barriers that prevent that equitable access
3: well, not only that, like I think another piece of this too that it shouldn't make you sick, right, so I think that's like the space where like where my research lies and my interests lie, and I think the most violent part of this is that like for those of us who are part indigenous it's like this was our land. And so to not only come from like an oppressed community, but then to have people in power, then be able to like remove our access, I think is just especially painful.
0: Yeah. Or to say that you are not from here, you're not of this place when in fact you are, or your ancestors were at some point. And yeah, you also bring up a really good point in terms of not living in a neighborhood that is essentially poisoning you. Because when we talk about nature, it shouldn't necessarily be going to a park. It should just be like walking outside of your house and like observing nature, right? And when you can't do that because your water is polluted or your air is toxic, then it just even takes out even the most bare access to nature, right? Exactly, exactly. All right, Samrat. You're next. What role has nature played in your life?
2: I feel like I shouldn't be part of this conversation. I feel very privileged, like I'm a privileged immigrant. Uh, we
0: all have our stories. Okay. You know, no one is invalidated
2: right here. i here with the green card and everything. I've just had, and I've had in the U.S. especially, given that my ex-wife, she they're Russian immigrants who live so close to nature that it was just such a normal way of their life that I didn't even think about any of these issues about access and pollution here. But I do want to talk about sort of the Indian perspective on this, that when I was growing up in India, and I grew up in a small town, which was my dad worked for one of the largest oil refineries in the country in India. And uh, the town was an artificial town, and it was sort of the greediest place around. Like, this is very strange that our artificial town was the greediest place, despite the fact that it was a town for the workers of an oil refinery. Mm. What has happened in India systematically is destruction of nature. Where the most common animal is, as are human beings. We've sort of taken over the whole land and pushed nature into the background. So, as I graduated from college and then worked there in India, Silicon Valley, in big cities, it is absolutely shocking to see how disconnected most people in India are from nature. It's not even a consideration. This is not a conversation people are having about access and being in nature because it doesn't matter how much money you have. You don't have the access to nature. Nobody has access to nature. So it's like an extreme scenario that has unfolded in most parts of India. Not all parts of India. There's some parts of India where you still have access to beautiful nature. But in most parts, it's why would you want to be outside? Why would you want to take a walk? Right. And I was very depressed in that for the longest time. And it's only after I came here and I, with my ex wife's family, that we spent so much time in nature that I realized that this is what I was missing. This is what I needed in my life. Mm. People can't see this, but if you look outside my window, there you see that it's like I live in a tree house and this is what I was missing. So it's sort of fascinating to hear everybody's perspective on this and then to think back towards uh, how different is the perspective of most Indians who are growing up in India as far as nature is concerned.
0: Yeah. And I think like you answering this question kind of just demonstrate what I'm trying to achieve with this question is just everyone has a different experience with nature. Some people didn't even think about nature until much later in their life. And then reflecting, they're like, oh, like in my case, I never really thought about how nature was influencing me. But as I started this podcast and reflecting on other people's reflections i was like oh i guess it did influence me when we learned about the savannah grasslands or when we'd gone on a school trip to nairobi national park like some of that stuff we just took it for granted but we weren't also taught about how we were part of that nature just that that nature was there
2: it reminds me of this woman i like sort of made acquaintance with who was working in our neighborhood and i she was from Kenya and and I was like immediately very excited because I'm really into big cats and I studied them and all of that. So I'm, I'm like, tell me more about it. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've grown up in a big city. I don't want to go outside when it's dark. Yeah. So it, it was so like, it was again, this assumption on my part that yeah. just because somebody is from Kenya, it means they must love big cats. But yeah. said, oh, I don't care about it.
0: Yeah. Or there was the opposite of like when I came to the U.S. for school and People still today ask me, what is it like growing up in Kenya or in East Africa? Well, they don't even know it's East Africa. It's just Africa to them. And so in the beginning, I would joke and be like, yeah, you know, we live on trees. And my pet, he's a lion. He's called Simba. And they're like, oh, really? And I'm like, yo, no, (laughs) I have no idea. You know, like there's so many people in Kenya who've never seen a lion. Because going into these national parks is super expensive. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's so sad. That is so sad. It is. Right? It is so sad because these are just these incredible beasts. And not in a bad way, but these yeah. creatures that live there and they're only found in these places, like in some parts of Africa and India. And oh, that's very sad.
0: Yeah. And so like, there's not that sense of, this is ours, Right. You know, ours to protect, ours to preserve. And that's where it kind of like that divide comes. So I wanted to also get into talking about ECEJ, which is the Educator Collective of Environmental Justice. And then I'd like to talk to Isabel a little bit more about Rice's Collective. So tell me, how did ECEJ come to be?
3: So Samra and I met at a climate change conference that we both were presenting at in some capacity. And I think it was really interesting because it was one of the first, for me, it was one of the first conferences where I was really upset about who the audience was. Who was the audience? Very affluent, mostly white people. And so it was hard for me because I was like, this is not who I want to share. Like me sharing my work to this audience isn't helpful. Like I just realized that wasn't the space where I wanted to like shift things, right? And so like I met Samra and we were very like-minded in that we're super action-oriented. Like we see where there's like an issue and we can like quickly implement an idea. And so that's kind of how things kicked off. Samra, do you want to say anything about that?
2: just the fact that yeah it's not surprising that you had that experience because without giving away any names that's the kind of place where if you have money you have access to that place right so that's just it's a question of when the organizers do an event like that it almost sets it up for oh this will be attended by those folks who have access to places like this but also if you look at the larger picture who can come to a weekend conference Who has time to come to a weekend conference, right? That usually is affluent people. They are, or then otherwise you're working and you're doing that work. Like you have some organization that you're running. Otherwise, people who are struggling to make ends meet, who are at the, have to bear the brunt of the kind of pollution Laura was mentioning earlier, or the immigrants who are struggling with their lives, like Isabel mentioned, how can they get to a conference like that? They don't have time.
3: Yeah. Right, exactly. And I think where the vision and like the mission of ECEJ lives is like Samra and I both are super passionate about what the power of education holds in its ability to transform society. And obviously there's kind of a delayed manifestation, but I think that's also shifting, right? And people in that people are giving like legitimate power to the youth voice and youth action. And so I'm a former classroom science teacher and I shifted my teaching practice and just like taught environmental justice, even though it wasn't part of the curriculum. And I saw how that just changed everything about what I was teaching. And then it actually changed like campus culture around like environment. Like it just had really... And it wasn't me. It was just like my mindset. And so then when Summer and I talk through, like there's real opportunity here in the medium of education, right? So like in professional development for educators, and then also like having a youth collective that can also engage in in work there. And then because I think the mission and the vision was just so, it was right. Both of those spheres have really taken off really quickly, which makes it feel like our intent is right, you know?
0: Yeah, that people want this information. They want to use it for their own upliftment and they want to be their own agents of change. You're meeting them where they are,
3: essentially. Right. 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 And then also, I think there's like a big desire. I mean, like we're also trying to like dismantle some oppressive structures that live in in education also. And so we're trying to do that in a way that's savvy, yet also authentic to what needs to be done. So there's work in that space too.
0: Yeah. So give us an example of how you're trying to be savvy, but dismantle some of these oppressive systems and how you're doing that with races, but not so much So that Isabel can tell us a little bit about how she's looking to collaborate with you all as well.
3: Yeah, for sure. And then so not, like chime in when necessary. I think that's a tough question to answer because we learn with every experience. And because what, I mean, really what environmental justice, like I think it, it depends on who you talk to, but for me, environmental justice is equal pollution burden and equal access. And when you talk about equal pollution burden, people who aren't burdened are going to get uncomfortable with the idea that if we actually have environmental justice, their neighborhoods will become more polluted so that like places like where I grew up aren't over-polluted, right? And so those conversations are tough to navigate. So sometimes we give workshops and professional development to an audience who's in a more conservative area where we have to be a little bit careful with our language but the message is still the same and the curriculum is still the same right so instead of saying environmental racism we can kind of pull that back a little bit and just show the data and talk through it and then they they have to do that themselves for me that's tough because i am working in this space right i'm like actually addressing critical race theory like as it relates to all this stuff and so so, it's tough for me to not say that. Like, and Summer and I have to collaborate a lot because I think that for me is tough. And I don't know if it's right to not say it. Actually, like, it's not right to not say it. But if we do, then they'll leave. Right. So, I, I don't know. Like, I have a really tough time with that, clearly, as you can tell. But
2: then to Laura's point, I mean, we have presented to a few conservative audiences, like where I am in New York, though I live in a very progressive town. But this is upstate New York. So, as soon as you move out of the town, the university influence wanes. You see that people are more circumspect about things like environmental justice. So they really have no idea about how this plays out. Because they've also not experienced any of that personally. And they don't know people who have suffered the brunt of it. So it's, so we have to approach the conversation a certain way. Or to take an example, we were presenting at a climate summit that just happened here that we both presented at. Laura was Speaking about environmental justice and one of the organizers of the summit, who is a person who's worked in education a long time, supposedly, she said in a breakout room to me, she said, I've been in this for such a long time. Are we still talking about the injustice? When are we going to talk about the solutions? And I thought, you really don't get it. Like You really don't get it. I, yeah. could say it. I just couldn't say that. But that's the kind of work we have to do where that's the kind of dismantling that has to happen. Yeah.
3: Exactly. And it's like someone like that is very privileged and thinks that they're in it and thinks that they're in the sustainability movement. And when we bring this, it's like, it's data, right? Where I'm operating from is I start with data, right? And so when they see the data, it rocks them a little bit, right? And then they push back and it's hard. Like that bit is hard for me. And like, as a woman of color, like, it's just a lot to navigate all in one space. And you don't want to give that voice much like opportunity to even take up space if that makes sense but also having to honor that because that's where the work lives really and right, so, yeah, right.
2: it's all yeah. tough <laughs> and it's like what isabel said earlier like here you like if their community hires a bunch of these people who are supposedly going to execute this project and they have this background and they have these mbas and whatever their experience right and How do you challenge that, right? It's not a simple task to be able to challenge that because if you just call them out, nobody listens to you. Yeah. If you tell them you don't know what you're doing, then you don't get a seat on the table. Yeah. So It's a tough balancing act there where you need to somehow work with folks who may not understand the problem that they're trying to solve.
0: Yeah. Isabel, I see you nodding your head a lot. Do you have similar experiences as well in your work with the collective?
1: I think my experience is a little different because when I went to college in Sacramento State in 98, I was like so young. And when you're living in, at least for me, living in Sonoma County, I didn't get a clear view of the inequities until I left Sonoma County, right? So I stepped out of that place that I grew up. And Sacramento is so diverse. Sacramento at the time when I was there, it was one of the most diverse colleges in California. And so I didn't realize how much diversity there was in California until I moved. And then I became involved in a student organization called the Movimiento Studentil Chicano de Aslan, a student movement that came out of like the Chicano movement in the 60s, right? And so our mentors were still around, even though they had like retired as professors even though I became a business major, I still was taking art. So one of my professors had been a part of this collective, this arts collective called the Royal Chicano Air Force. And basically they were the art front to the movement at that time, right? So they would take space. Like when they were students at Sex Day, they started that organization when they were students. They brought in ethnic studies, right? They fought to bring in ethnic studies and women's studies and they were doing silkscreen printing for the UFW movement, right? To get workers rights. And then one of them became the first Chicano mayor in Sacramento. And then they started a bookstore, La Raza Galeria Posada. And then they organized to create like the Washington Neighborhood Center. And it wasn't through data, it wasn't through classes, it wasn't through, it was through stories, and it was through creating community, right? We were trying to do the same thing that they were when they were in college. We were like protesting racist comedians, right, that were coming onto campus. We were organizing with Students Justice for Palestine and the Black student organizations. And so we had incredible mentors that were part of that movement in the 60s. And then I come back to Sonoma County and then it feels like I'm back in like the 60s where it's like there's no cultural centers, there's no like social justice activities or programs that I was used to in in Sacramento. And so I started seeing that part of the inequity or a, a lot of the inequity stemmed from not having space. Whether it was community space, a cultural center, a bookstore, a coffee shop, there were no spaces for us to come together and create community. I couldn't share these stories with anyone. I couldn't talk about issues that were affecting undocumented people or my community or the community that I come from. And then also simultaneously working with a corporation with State Farm, I think I got this job in 2007. when there was a recession and the only job I could get was insurance career. And so working 11 years for the corporate, being in a cubicle and also just feeling like, oh my God, it's totally profits over people. And it was killing my soul and I couldn't do that anymore. And then volunteering in different nonprofits in my community, but also seeing that there wasn't enough women leading, there wasn't people of color leading, there wasn't spaces, programs for families to even come together. So a lot of the art things that I wanted to be involved in with my daughter, I wanted to do it with her. And there weren't any spaces like that. There weren't any programs like that. It was only specific to like seven to 12 year olds. Right. And I was like, no, we need programs where like our families can come together Mm -hmm. and do things like that. So then I started reflecting on that collective in Sacramento and friends of mine had also started Soul Collective in Sacramento. I went to college with them. And I remember they had purchased their building for 12 years. So they had started way ahead. And so they had a permanent space, right? They can't get displaced anymore. And they're just having amazing success with their programming. And so I was like, we need a collective here. We need to just, start organizing. And I submitted. When I heard my company, the corporate was closing their offices in California. I was like, I'm not moving with them. I'm going to figure out a different career. And that's when I like, started talking with a bunch of friends. And we all chipped in to submit for this 501c3. And I thought I was going to have two years to strategize. And we ended up getting 501c3 status in like four months. I think it's because it was like giving us agency, right? to create our own program. So my friend was like, I want to do yoga bilingually. So we started doing that. And like wherever we could get space, Peace and Justice Center, the Arlene Francis Center. And then we started taking up space at this currently being developed, but it's called the Rosen Village Neighborhood Center. And we were one of the first organizations taking up space there. And after us, like a lot more nonprofits started coming to do events in there, right? And it was, super successful. And this was like, I didn't have a website, like all our events were literally through Facebook. (laughs) Um, And so that's when I knew there was just a huge need for these kinds of programs. And it was really literally me just like, because I had a community and a network of like artists and poets and different people that really wanted to empower community and connect with community that our collective started just becoming really successful. And we started doing workshops in the libraries. Teachers at various schools started reaching out, wanted us to come into their classrooms. And that's how I met Laura, actually. We partnered with the organization called Stewards of the Redwoods and Coast. And we did like a youth, our very first youth environmental Artivist summit. Mm-hmm. So we took like 15, 16 kids out to Pomo Canyon, right? Urban kids that don't normally have the means to go out into these open spaces to do like canoeing and like watershed education. and But also part of our work is not necessarily environmental education that's like westernized, but also bringing in indigenous people's education and their perspective on what it means to take care of the land and creation stories, right? So these things that you don't get to learn about in school. That's how I met Lauda. I think it's Michelle, who was a colleague of Laura's. I think they might've went to school together or did a program together. And Michelle was like, oh, I love this feeling. And we did like murals on the bridge. And so we incorporated a lot of art in there too. And social justice, we brought organizations like Movement Generation in the Bay Area to come in and talk to the kids about like environment and social justice issues. and just empowering the kids all around of the different professions, opportunities and issues, right? But also like, even though we no longer kind of, we stopped working with stewards of the Red River St. Coast because they started trying to sort of take over our programming, right? They were like, oh, we're we're getting these grants and we have to use this money to do this specific kind of education. And that's when we were like, then it wouldn't be our program, right? And we had to like step back from it because then they started trying to sort of take it over, right? And most recently, I think there's an artist who's like Asian and she applied for their arts residency program and she had an encounter with a park ranger that was really traumatic for her. And it was like, for her, it was definitely racist, And so we still have these issues, right? And she brought it up to the executive director of this organization. It's the executive director, apologized, And the artist brought a remediation like document and all of these things, right? And they didn't do anything, right? So we're also trying to figure out right now, because I am in this role, like trying to bring it up in a larger context because we are still having gatekeepers like the park rangers that aren't making it safe yes, like, pollution is making us sick, but also racism is, like, an environmental, like, pollution, pollution, right? That makes makes us sick, too, right? So dealing with that, too, in that level of, like, opening up spaces, like, safe, safe spaces, like, in our open spaces is really super important for me.
0: Yeah. And for us. So, a few things there is I really enjoy learning stories of how people get connected to one another. And it just, it always happens in the most random way when you least expect it. But when it does, it's just like that aha moment of like, yes, we should definitely collaborate because the alignment is just really obvious. And so, Laura, you were talking about how you try to use data and Isabel believes or is using storytelling as a way to highlight the injustices within the community she works in so when you saw Isabel for the first time and like had an opportunity to interact how did you see this I guess manifesting or an opportunity for collaboration?
3: Yeah so it didn't all happen at the same moment so Isabel like she presented at a professional development program that I attended, and I just felt really moved by her work. And it all came together because we have a common friend, Michelle, and she's like very like-minded, right? And during the program, Michelle like really built community, which was really amazing. And so we had an opportunity to just like hang out, and I remember just feeling really inspired and really connected and really moved by the work. And then like years passed and then ECJ started and our youth collective is starting a data collection. They're doing like an air monitoring study in in the city of San Leandro. And so part of my work is actually, which is so interesting, this is like something that keeps coming up today, but is actually like bringing the human experience to the data. And so we utilize something called story mapping And that's a large part of where our professional development is living in terms of the EJ space is um, training teachers how to narrate the community experience in vulnerable communities. And so I had seen that somebody had done like a museum and I was like, this is perfect. Like I just hit up Isabel because it just hit me after like just letting her know what the project was like. I was like, this is amazing. Um, And I can like let her know like how she like envisioned that. But, yeah, I think there's a real need, like, and this is where the power of collaboration is, which I like really hope that in the nonprofit world, this is like more embraced. but there's so much power in a collection of perspectives and people and organizations. And so I know how I feel when it's not just like data does a thing, right? But being moved by what that can say and what's happening in the community is another thing. so
0: Yeah. Like you can show people a bunch of, I don't know, Excel sheets or dots on a map, but if you don't know how to interpret that data for them, then it doesn't move them to the action or tell a story around what that data means to them and how they can use it. Then it just is data. That's all right.
3: It's like, there's a lot of work in decolonizing like science. And that's kind of where I'm being savvy in this space, right? Like I have some literacy, I have privilege in that I was trained in the world of science, but now it's like, cool, like I'm in this space. And like, now I want to like, like, let's actually do something meaningful here. <laughs> Not that there hasn't been, but like, like that's where my yeah. work is.
0: Like, make the data relevant to the people who you're working with or the impact that you're trying to bring about.
3: Yeah. I'm also a master's student at Cal and I'm getting my master's in public health, it's interesting hearing Isabel talk about like the people that are coming into her community. And it's like, we need to have more people from the communities that they're trying to represent, like be the change makers. And so I think that's also like really important.
0: Yeah. And so Laura, the last time we were talking, you mentioned how you are working with some high school students to develop or gather air quality data. Is that the project or the data that you're getting from that project with the students in San Leandro? going to feed into your collaboration with Isabel at the collective?
3: Yeah. So they're actually college students one high school student, actually. But so our youth lead, his name is Gabriel Trevino and he's from the city of San Leandro. And so we brainstormed together, like what we wanted to monitor, why after looking through like different data sets. And then we got to a stopping place. It was like, okay, cool. We collected some stuff, but like, how are we going to make this powerful? And then that's when we reached out to Isabel to like talk about, because it's also like building community in this process. And that's clearly something that she's really not only good at, but, but it can move this into a more powerful and like moving experience for people that see the work and that experience what the project is. And the project is like not a right word, but it's like really like an experience. Yeah. An experience.
1: Yeah. And artists, like at least the ones time and time again, right? whatever issue, like COVID, oh my God, there's no information. Our people don't read necessarily. And for me, it's always like, let's bring it to the artist, right? And then they end up creating just amazing artwork that doesn't need any data or like explaining or reading. Like you just look at it and you're like, oh, I need to get the vaccine or, oh, I need to wear my mask right? Because I do want to protect my elders. Just really cool things like t-shirt. We started silk screening t-shirt with the word pontela, which could mean put it on, but it could be put on the vaccine or put on the mask, right? So for me, it's always like, like Laura said, like creating community in this work. Sometimes you feel so alone, right? Like, oh my God, like nobody's going to understand me or like, I'm the only nerd that like cares about this data or like, can interpret it, right? And no, like, if you sit down with, like, I've done time again, sat down with artists, explain to them, like, the equity issue involved, and then their mind just shifts. And, like, I have, for example, this artist who's dyslexic dropped out of high school, and yet he still was able to be the owner of a development company. He's an artist right now making repurposed art from recycled repurposed materials. It's just incredible, right? And so, his mind works in this way that like mine, doesn't. And so he's able to think about things in a whole different way, right? Even when I told him about this project, he's like, oh, like he had already been thinking about sort of using technology to create like 3D art or something like that, where you don't actually have to Create It could be done in the digital world, right? Mm-hmm. And We have apps on our phones. Everyone has phones that you could just download it. Kind of like, you know, that stargazing app where you put it up and you could see the constellation. He was thinking of something similar using this data that Lara was talking about and creating like, I don't know, something digital that you could like view through your phone or something like that. Yeah. But anyway, so everyone has really Cool ideas and creative ideas. And that's the point is to like try to inform people through art in a way that doesn't necessarily involve like reading.
0: Right. -hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting in terms of lately I've been seeing a lot of courses, virtual courses about teaching environmental justice. And something that you all mentioned throughout this conversation is. Laura, first, you were talking about having this kind of like a dilemma or conflict of using environmental justice versus environmental racism. And then, you know, Samrat, you were talking about how you are in a fairly conservative space, like in upstate New York. So you also have your own challenges of communicating what environmental justice is. And here, Isabel is talking about the power of art and storytelling To convey the impact of environmental and social justice issues on and in a community. So one thing that I'm curious to hear a little bit more about is, and so we can start with you, is how do you go about educating people on what environmental justice is? And you're a high school teacher too, right? So Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) This is not easy. I'm not sure. I really don't know. What's the best way to do it? Because I think I personally change tactics based on who the audience is. I first try to understand my audience, which is my students from year to year. And it's funny that the composition of the class in terms of their strongly held beliefs will vary from year to year. They come with certain notions about their place in the world and like on the scale of having being enlightened about these issues and having no clue they are somewhere there right and first I have to get a sense of where they are and then I have to start a conversation and sometimes the conversation doesn't start with people sometimes i have to start the conversation with animals because it's more accessible to them sometimes it's funny like a lot of people and not that there's better or worse here but a lot of them respond more to the suffering of other animals instead of their fellow human beings. So it's just is a process for me. But I think Laura would answer this question better because I actually have to kind of tippy toe around environmental justice. That's what I do. I do this dance, which is a delicate dance. And I have to talk about things like savings, financial savings, world leadership, this and that, because if I use the word that I really should, like Laura was saying that it feels wrong to not use the word environmental racism. If I used it, I think I would lose most of my audience.
0: Yeah. And why is that? And who is your audience?
2: So my audience, these, my students, and I can't say for all of them, I'm not making a claim here that all of them would find these issues repulsive to the extent that they would fail to engage with me. But I think there's enough of a, Minority there, I think majority of the students would actually enjoy these conversations, but there's enough of a vocal minority there that doesn't want these issues to be addressed at all. So when the pandemic started, and I was speaking with them about the misinformation that was being spread about vaccines and COVID itself, and that coming right from the top, from the president at that mm. time, when Donald Trump was the president. Mm. I can't tell you how some students complained about me to the principal, that he's making the class political. And I said, I'm not sure where like talking about hard science and hard numbers. If that's political, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Right. So it's a balance where in order to give most of the students the best of this outlook so that they can develop this more compassionate and more cosmopolitan outlook for lack of a better word. I don't really like cosmopolitan. but um. (laughs) just think of the drink. (laughs) But to give them that outlook, I think it's, I have to sometimes stay away from using certain words Mm. because otherwise I would end up in a place where the discussion has become unproductive.
0: Yeah. And maybe it is just what it is, right, Laura?
3: Well, I think what is being done is still the same. So it's just how, and that matters, right? And teachers have, I think, especially high school teachers, like it's really difficult because we're in a space where we have to be very culturally responsive. For me, what it means is like, I want students to be equipped with the ability to ask the right questions, Mm. right? If I give them the tools, like, I don't want to teach them science just so they can get, like, and them to do well and succeed just so they can go to like some fancy college, right? Like that was not my worldview as a teacher at all. What I really cared about was like empowering them with the ability, like science is about asking questions, like being curious about what's going on, right? Like when I saw these maps, I was like, what the heck? Like, why is my community so polluted, right? That was my question. And why us, right? Why us and not Marin County? And so you can still walk students through that process. Without being the person that says the words that need to be said. But you can facilitate an experience where someone else in the room probably will. And like, also, students are a reflection of their community. And so, you know, I'm from the Bay Area where it's like largely seen as pretty progressive, although manifestations and policy doesn't reflect that. But like, that's where my work lives. But not every community is like that. And so, Like, I think in the work that we engage in, we have to be like equally culturally responsive. It's just like learning how the delivery mechanism can change, but the actual meat of the work is still the same, right? That sense of what's being done is the same. It just might look different, but it still lands properly.
2: Sorry. Yeah. And I would never blame my student that they are a certain way. And because of that, I cannot use certain means of delivery. Absolutely not. They are where they are. I see them as victims too because they are being separated from the other mass of humanity where we draw these artificial lines that you're on the left and you're on the right and you're supposed to have these views and they're supposed to have those views. They are being separated from this process of like they have to open their hearts. Mm -hmm. And if that means that I just have to meet them where they are, then that's what I have to do, right? But it's also a learning process for me because then I also have to learn what their lives are like. I can't go into it with this attitude that, oh, we've got it all figured out with the science is on our side. We know what we are talking about. No, this is like we said earlier, this is also about the human experience. And they've just had had different experiences. So it's really how do we find a common language where we can then we can start looking at the issues as they affect all of us?
1: Yeah. And also like, I remember talking to like when Trump was in office, right? And I came to speak to a class and I started getting a lot of pushback from one particular student who was Latino, which was totally, for me, unexpected, right? And he was basically regurgitating a lot of the rhetoric that, that Trump was basically spewing, right? And so you also have this dynamic of young kids like listening and like regurgitating these arguments coming from Republican. I could sense like a lot of self-hate, right? And so like Laura said, you just have to stick to the facts, right? These are the facts. This is like kind of you have to go into the history behind policies. And for me, it was just keeping it simple. But I kept getting even after that, he kept coming at me with these arguments where I was just like, listen, I'm here to do art. I totally would love to continue having this discussion with you, but we can do it like outside of class, if you'd like. But right now I, I want to focus on what I'm here to do, which is like helping everyone with this mural, right? And so I understand Samrat and teachers, right? Having all of these different energies and perspectives coming at them. That's so much energy as a teacher, like having to deal with all of these, things. Right? It's this really intersectional, I think. And I felt it from one student, but I have friends who were adjunct teachers at Sonoma State and a lot of Republicans are at Sonoma State to the point where they didn't want to go back because there was a lot of like just constant pushback from these students, from these Republican students. And I think it was done on purpose to teachers of color to not have them come back to teach. Because there was various teachers or adjunct teachers of color experiencing this. And it seemed to stem from a specific group of students, right, at school. And so it has to be really tough for educators stepping
2: into these classrooms too. And I think it's like and this is not I'm not trying to create a false balance here anyway. But I think the question is really how do we challenge our students? To think about things that are uncomfortable. In a progressive community, those questions would look different. So, my daughter goes to a school which is a very progressive school where they can talk about all of this. But I think that there are issues that they need to look at. And it would be an interesting experience if there I went in as a brown teacher and raised some questions, right? Like, because the university that I went to here, Sunilupo, I, I would say that i am faced like reverse positive discrimination, if that's even a phrase. Everybody was like, "Oh, give some the mic because he's the he's
0: the minority you know, myth,
2: right?" And I'm like, "Okay, sure." I'll, my friends would like they would wink at me like, "Who are white folks?" You know, they would say like, "Only you can say that because if we said that, we'd be immediately labeled as something, mm-hmm. right?" And you can get away with saying that. So then the question also, it's something we also need to look at is how could we have conversations that are non-judgmental in the way that we can really have honest conversations without getting upset in certain ways and without labeling people as racist, sexist, and all of that, right? And I guess what better place to do that than in our classrooms?
0: Yeah. Thank you for listening. And part two will be available on September 7th. Stay tuned. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our changemakers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.